Last week, Pastor Paul did a, a brief overview of all three chapters of Second Peter. And then he expounded verses 1 to 2 of chapter 1. So before diving into the incredibly rich text of verses 3 to 4, let's briefly revisit verse 2. It says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. What we see in this verse is that Peter prays that his hearers will have grace and peace multiplied to them. And the way in which grace and peace are multiplied is through the knowledge of God. Peter ends his letter with the same thought. Verse 18 of chapter 3 says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter begins and ends with the same thought. And this shows that the main idea, the main idea of this wonderful letter, the main burden of Peter for his hearers, the thing he wants most for them, for us, is that they may grow in the grace of God, which is only possible if they know God. This is what Second Peter is about. The verses that I want to draw your attention to this morning are verses 3 to 4. In this text, we will see that Peter is simply unpacking what he already said in verse 2. So let's, let's read these two verses together. Verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Some of our translations have translated the beginning of verse 3 as seeing that his divine power has granted which helps us see the connection between verses 3 and 4 and verse 2. However, some of our translations simply say, His divine power. But regardless of what that translation is, the meaning of the text is clear. It shows that Peter's intention is to show that godliness is only possible for those who know God. Peter wants us to know that God wants us to be like him in his moral perfections. But this is only possible if you know his glory and excellence and know and believe and trust in his precious promises. What we are going to do this morning is to walk through this text bit by bit, thought for thought, and in places, word for word, so that you will see what the Holy Spirit is saying and um, that it won't be man's own interpretation, my interpretation. And throughout, I'll also be referencing several other passages of the Bible. So verse 3 begins, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Christian, you have everything you need for life and godliness. This is what this verse says. And it is given to you by God's divine power. The statement shows that God has given every Christian everything they need to grow in holiness. Not some things, not most things, but all things. We have everything we need for godliness. Everything we need for our sanctification. Sadly, if you look at the lives of Christians around us and even to our own lives, it becomes apparent that Christians are generally no longer fighting for holiness. What's apparent in today's culture is that Christians who are called to be the lights in the world are becoming like the world. And today we live in a time where we are bombarded with immoral, worldly messaging wherever we look. We live in a world where sin is not only practiced, but it is celebrated and promoted via almost every single media source possible. And if you don't celebrate this immorality with the world, you'll be shunned, you'll be ridiculed, and even hated. So the battle against ungodliness in our lives is a daily battle. And in our own strength, it is an impossible battle to win. 
yet we are called to live a life of godliness. So how does a Christian do it? How does the Christian grow in holiness, grow in sanctification in today's world or ever? Christian, the Apostle Peter, in these two short verses that we are looking at this morning, wants you to know that God has given you everything you need to live a godly life. And when, even when temptation is pressing in around you continuously. So let's look at this text more closely. Looking at verse 3, the first thing we must realize is that what we need for godliness is given to us by God's power. His divine power is the source of everything we need for a godly life. The opposite is then also clear, that without God's power in our lives, we cannot live godly lives. We can do no good apart from God. Why has Peter emphasized that it is God's power that has granted to us all things? I believe it is this. It is to show that godliness is possible. The battle against ungodliness is not a losing battle, but a battle in which ungodliness is and will be defeated. The Bible is filled with references to God's power. To name but a few... Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah 10 verse 12 says, It is he who made the earth by his power. So God made the earth with his power. And Exodus 15 verse 6 says, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. So God's power created the earth and everything in it. And his power shatters the enemy. But scripture also shows us that God's power sustains and strengthens his people. Isaiah 40 verse 28 to 31 says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint And to him who has no might, he increases strength. God has always, by his power, strengthened his people. And in Ephesians 1 verse 19, we see that his power raised Christ from the dead. And we see in Ephesians 2 verse 5 and 6, it is this power that made us alive together with Christ. And it is this power that raised us up with him. Friends, do you see this? That the same power that raised Christ from the dead made us alive together with him and raised us up from being dead in our sins that we once lived in. It is this power that has given us everything we need to live a godly life. Godliness is possible because of God's divine power. The next thing I want to draw your attention to is the little word that's there. It says, granted. It is such a little word, but it is very incredibly important. This word gives us the idea of a gift. Something that is freely given. By God's divine power, we have been freely given everything we need for life and godliness. It is not our reward for anything we have done, are doing, or will do. Life and godliness is only possible because God has freely given us the resources necessary to do it. Remember that in verse 2, Peter prays that grace and peace may be multiplied. We see this fleshed out in this verse. John Piper describes grace as the free power of God working in us for our good. And we see that here. We see verse 3 says that God's power has freely given us everything we need pertaining to God, uh, to godliness and life. And this is what Peter prayed for in verse 2. So God, by his power, has freely given us everything we need for life and godliness. Next, we see the reason for God giving us all things. The reason for God giving us grace by his power. It is so that we may have a life that is marked by godliness. This is the purpose of his gift. The word used here by Peter for life... Is not talking about our physical lives primarily, although there are implications for it. 
It is rather referring to eternal life. God has given us everything we need for eternal life. But Peter does not only mention life. He says life and godliness. Why is this? Are they two separate things? Are they two separate ideas? Can a Christian have life apart from godliness? My friends, we must understand we must understand this because this is key. Godliness is inextricably linked to life, to eternal life. Why? Because eternal life is a transformed life. It is a new life. When you are made alive, you have been raised from life, from the dead, to, uh, dead of sin that you were once in. You have passed from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. If you have eternal life, it must be a transformed life. And this transformed life has to be evidenced by a change of desires, as we'll see later. And that, those change of desires lead to godliness. Another way to put this is that godliness is the proof of eternal life. We can see this clearly elsewhere in this letter. In chapter 2, Peter is addressing the problem of false teachers that have crept in and will continue to creep into the church. Peter describes them in verses 19 to 22 of chapter 2. And what he says is this, is that if a person professes knowledge of Christ and then returns to his former manner of life, returning to all the defilements of the world, that person is worse off now than he was in the beginning. This means that mere profession of faith in Christ is not is not eternal life. A profession of faith does not mean that you have eternal life. It is only when that profession is marked by godliness that the Christian can have confidence that he or she has eternal life. And here is the encouraging part about what Peter is saying. Peter tells us that we have everything we need for that life, for that godliness. Everything. We can live a godly life now because God's power has given us all the resources to do so. Christian, the question is, is your life marked by godliness? Friends, God has given us, so in summary, God has given us by his divine power everything we need for life and godliness. And the source of the all things at the beginning of verse 3 is God's divine power. Now, Moving on, the apostle tells us how we are given the all things that pertain to life and godliness. It says that we are given it through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So again, Peter introduced this idea of knowing God in verse 2. This is what Peter means. If you know God, you will have everything you need for life and godliness. You need to see this. This is very important. To know God is everything. There's no more, this is no more clearly stated than in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, verses 1 to 3. You don't need to turn there, I'll just read it to you. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. Do you see that? What does Jesus say is eternal life? It is the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ. Jesus does not say that eternal life is living a good life. He does not say that it is living forever. He does not say that it is living in paradise. No, he says eternal life is knowing God. If you know God, you have eternal life. So what does it mean to know God? Last week, Pastor Paul briefly explained what this knowledge of God is. He showed us that, one, that knowledge of God is possible. And it's possible because God has made himself known. And the way God has made himself known is particularly through his word. And also that this knowledge of God is productive. It leads to godly action. 
Therefore, we must pursue knowledge of God through the way God has chosen to reveal himself to us, and that is through his word. Sadly, church history and even our own lives have shown us that mere profession of faith in Christ and mere confession that you know certain facts about God does not mean that a person is a Christian or has eternal life. So because of this, a further discussion of what this knowledge is, is needed. So what is this knowledge that Peter is speaking about? Is it propositional, theoretical knowledge about God that we need for eternal life? The Bible gives us a lot of information about God. We even see, going back to the Old Testament, that God gave the law to his people so that they may see his character, his holiness. God certainly wants us to know about his awesome attributes. We see in Exodus, another example is that God poured out the ten plagues on Egypt so that the Egyptians and the Israelites would know the power and might of the one and only true God. He showed the Egyptians that he is superior to their false gods. But is this the kind of knowledge that Peter is referring to here? Is that what it means to know God, just simply to know about him? So hear what James says in James 2 verse 19. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. No, my friends, the knowledge that Peter is talking about is something more and something greater. So again, hear what Jeremiah 31 verses 33 to 34 says. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and will remember their sin no more. The new covenant promise is that God's people will know God in their minds and in their hearts. It is a heart knowledge, if you will. Yes, we need to know about God because that is where true knowledge begins. Romans 10 makes this clear. It says, how will they believe unless they first hear? But the knowledge that Peter is referring to is a personal knowledge, an intimate knowledge. So what is the difference? It is this. One can know that God is holy and do nothing with that knowledge. Or one can be like the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, when beholding the holiness and glory of God, said this, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This true knowledge takes all the wonderful, theoretical, propositional knowledge about God and makes it real to us. When you have this knowledge, you know the one of whom the Bible speaks. True knowledge is knowledge that when you pray, you know that God is listening, that he hears you. It is knowledge that knows that he is faithful to keep his promises. This is the knowledge that saves. Regarding this knowledge, the question is not, do you possess knowledge about God, but do you know God? This is the most important question any person can ask. If you do not know God, you do not have eternal life. Christian, do you know God? And if you know God, your life should be marked marked with godliness. So we have been given everything we need to live a godly life by His divine power through knowing Him. Now how do we get to know Him? So let's continue in that verse. Look with me in the last part of verse 3. It says, Who has called us to his own glory and excellence. Once again, Peter makes it clear that everything pertaining to life or to our salvation has its origin in God and is carried out by his power. It is God who calls us. He calls us to know him. 
And some argue that God's calling is something that we can either accept or reject. But this is not what Scripture teaches. Rather, the Bible makes it clear that God's calling is effective. It will achieve its purpose. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 4 verse 17 that God calls into existence that that does not exist. And also Romans 8 verse 30 And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The picture Peter gives us here um, takes us back to Genesis 1, verse 3. When God called light out of darkness, God said, let there be light, and then there was light. What Peter is saying in this text is, one, that the knowledge that saves is only possible because we have been called by God, and two, that calling is effective. It will not return void. If God calls you to know him, you will. But how has God called you to know him? Our text says, through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Our ESV translation says, to his own glory and excellence. But I believe that the NASB has it correct when it says, by his own glory and excellence. We've been called to know God by his own glory and excellence. It is only when we receive the revelation of his glory and excellence that we are drawn to him. How is that glory and excellence shown? It is shown in the person of Jesus Christ. Colossians tells us that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. So if we see Jesus, we see the glory glory and excellence of God. And Peter mentions this in this chapter, verses 16 to 18, where he is speaking of how he and other apostles witnessed the majesty and glory of Jesus at his transfiguration. But how do we see the glory and excellence of Jesus Christ? We have already learned that it is through his word. It is the word that God has given us to reveal himself to us. I believe that one of the the best places in the Bible to see the glory and excellence of Jesus is in the Gospel of John. In John 20, verses 30 to 31, it says, it's basically, it's the Apostle John's purpose statement for writing the Gospel. And he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So what does the Gospel of John contain? It contains Jesus in all his glory and excellence. Jesus' glory is revealed right from the first chapter. In verses 1 to 5 of John 1, the apostle shows his readers Jesus' deity. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John further showed Jesus' glory by describing and filling the book with stories of the wonders and miracles that Jesus performed. Jesus performed miracles such as turning water into wine, healing the sick, walking on water, feeding 5,000 people with only five loaves of bread and two fish, and then also raising Lazarus from the dead. John also shows us the moral perfections of Jesus, his excellencies. He showed that Jesus lived a morally perfect life in continual submission to the Father. Then there is the crucifixion of Jesus. 
This was the greatest travesty in human history. It is where men murdered the author of life. It was also one of the greatest displays of God's glory. Once again, in John 17, the apostle lets us see that Jesus' crucifixion and subsequent resurrection were going to be his glory by writing down the words that Jesus prayed to the Father. Jesus prayed, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. Friends, God's glory and excellence were shown on the cross and in Jesus' resurrection. Peter says that we are called to know God by the revelation of his glory and excellence. It is how we are drawn to God. Here again the words in John 12, verse 32. And Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And this is obviously referencing the death that Jesus was about to die. It is by that death that Jesus draws all people to God. So what has this text shown us so far? So it has shown us that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And the way we receive those things is by knowing God. And the way we know God, it's only possible because He has called us. And the way He has called us is by revealing to us His glory and excellence in Jesus Christ as shown in the Word. So dear friends, do you see this? True knowledge is not merely knowing facts about Jesus, his divinity, moral perfections, and death and resurrection. It begins, it begins for sure with knowing those facts about Jesus. But the knowledge is made true when we truly behold that Jesus truly is absolutely and completely glorious and excellent. It begins when you see that Jesus is infinitely more precious than anything else in your life. This is true knowledge. Now let's read verse 4. It says, By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So verse 4, I believe, is simply a restatement of verse 3. In verse 3, we see that God's power gives us all things, so God's grace gives us all things for life and godliness, whereas verse 3 explains what those all things are. And those things are His precious and very great promises. Verse 4 also expounds the meaning of life and godliness in two ways. The term life and godliness in verse 3 is described in verse 4 positively as becoming partakers of the divine nature, and negatively as having escaped the corruption that is in the world. Also, verse 4 makes the purpose of God calling us to know Him and giving us all things for life and godliness. It makes this purpose clear. And it says, We have been called to know God so that we may become partakers of His divine nature. So, firstly, what does it mean to partake of His divine nature? To partake or share in the divine nature does not mean that we become divine. Rather, it means that we will share in God's moral excellence. We will be like Him in His moral excellence. We'll have the same perfect virtues as God. Remember in Genesis 1, we learned that God created man to be His image bearers, to reflect His perfections, and to multiply that image around the world. In other words, God created man to be like him. However, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the garden, the very purpose of man, which was to reflect God, to be his image bearers, to spread his glory, was ruined. It was tarnished. It was corrupted. But Jesus Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, as we see in Colossians 1, lived the perfect life on earth as the God-man, perfectly imaging God. Christ lived the very life man was created to live. And because of Christ's perfect life, his death and resurrection, as we discussed earlier, God in his mercy has restored to those who know him that chief purpose for our existence, which is to be his image-bearer 
or bearers to reflect his moral qualities. And it says this in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 2. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, to do those works which which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is why we were saved, friends. We were not saved simply so that we can escape hell. We don't cling to Jesus simply as a fire insurance policy, as John Piper says. No, we were saved so that we can glorify God and be like him in godliness. One of the biggest issues we see among professing Christians today is the self-centered view of the gospel. Yes, Jesus did die on the cross to save you, but he didn't do it primarily for you. He saved you for himself. Christian, you have been saved for his glory. You have been saved to be like him. Hear what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 14 to 16. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who is for he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. So partaking of the divine nature is to be holy in the same way that God is holy. This is the positive side of life and godliness. The negative side of godliness, as we see in the last part of verse 4, is saying, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. How can we live godly lives now, considering the very real, ever-presence of sin in our lives? And that is within and without. How can we be holy like God? It is because we have been freed from the corruption that is in the world through sinful desire. We are no longer slaves to the corruption that is in the world. We have escaped. Let's look at verses 18 to 19 of chapter 2 of Second Peter. This is what Peter says regarding the immoral and false teachers. So verses 18 to 19. For speaking loud boasts of folly... They entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. And right after this, in verse 20, Peter clearly states what this corruption is. He says that it is the defilement of the world. Peter is contrasting the false teachers who follow the the lusts of their flesh, who are slaves of corruption, with Christians who have escaped the corruption of the world. The false teachers, like all the ungodly, can only do that what their slave master, the devil, tells them to do, whereas Christians are bound to Christ. Corruption has no power over Christians. This truth is so clearly taught again in Ephesians chapter 2 where it says we were once dead in our sins following the passions of the flesh but have now been made alive together with Christ. Christian, a life of godliness is possible because you are no longer a slave to the corruption that is in the world because you have been made alive together with Christ. You can resist sin because it does not have any hold on you anymore. Notice that Peter tells us that this corruption is in the world because of sinful desire. So how is it that we have escaped the corruption that is in this world? It is because if we know God, he has changed our desires. If we know God, we, change, uh, we desire that which is greater, his glory and excellence. If we know God, we are looking forward to and believe in and trust in his promises. And what God has promised is infinitely greater than what sin and the world promise. This brings us to the means by which we become like God and escape the corruption that is in the world. As mentioned earlier, verse 3 simply states that we have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness, whereas I believe verse 4 is telling us what those things are. And those things, I believe, are His precious 
and very great promises. So God has called a people to himself through the glory and excellencies of Christ to truly know him and be like him. This God has made possible by his power that has changed our former sinful desires. And because our desires have changed, we no longer desire that what the world offers, but we desire that which is greater, which is God's promises. We sin because we falsely believe that our sin offers us greater joy and satisfaction than godliness. Human nature, in its fallenness, always does that which it desires the most. If you want to get fit or lose weight, but you love sleep more than that, guess which battle will win out each morning? It will be your sleep. You will choose sleep each time if you love sleep more than your desire to get fit. The same is true of all desires. What Peter wants us to know is that if you truly know God, you know and believe and desire his promises because your desires have been changed. He has given us his promises so that we may be godly. His promises are the means of sanctification he has given us. So what are these promises? <laughs> Time will not allow us to go through each and every one of God's precious promises this morning. I think it would take weeks, months, perhaps even years to go through those promises and expound them. However, I believe that Peter is not referring to God's promises in general. I believe that he is referring to God's specific eschatological promises. He's referring to his eschatological promises, the promises regarding the end of all things that lead us to become partakers of his divine nature. It is the specific promise of Christ's return and the new heavens and the new earth filled with righteousness that Peter is referring to. It is this very promise that the scoffers refer to in chapter 3 of this letter. It is that which they scoffed at. They denied that Jesus was going to return. So please would you turn to chapter 3 of Second Peter. Firstly, we see in verse 4, and it shows us that the scoffers will scoff by saying, Where is the promise of his coming? But what else do they scoff at or deny? The scoffers denied that God created the world by his word. They denied that it was by the same word that God judged the world in Genesis 6 to 8 by sending the flood that wiped out humanity except for righteous Noah and his family. In denying this, they also denied and deny that by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. They denied the promise of the coming judgment on the ungodly. Now please read with me verses 8 to to 10 of that chapter. Peter says regarding the coming of Jesus, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. And also read the very next three verses with me, verses 11 to 13. It says, Since all all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in, the lives, in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn? But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. For the Christian... The promise of Christ's return and the new heavens and new earth filled with righteousness leads to godliness. Why? Because those who know Jesus know that he is all glorious and excellent. 
And if you have beheld the glory and excellence of Jesus Christ, you will desire to be with him and to be like him in righteousness. And you desire this more than anything else in this world. And this is what God has promised. And if you have been taking notes and writing down scripture references or have not, I I encourage you to write down 1 John 3 verse 2. And this is a glorious text. And this is one of those texts that regarding this specific topic one should be meditating on. This is what it says. 1 John chapter 3 verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. We believe and desire the fulfillment of the promise that we will be with Jesus and that we will be perfectly like him when he comes. If you know God, the fulfillment of his promises are far more precious to you than the lusts of the flesh. Therefore, you will live in godliness. This promise gives us hope. It gives us hope in the daily battle against sin. It gives us hope that one day we will be free completely of the sin that we are battling. And it causes us, that hope is what causes us to press on, press on forward to the coming day of the return of Jesus. But I also believe there's a second way that knowing and believing the promises of Christ's return stirs Christians to godliness. It is this. I believe it is effective to cause us to guard against complacency. We are so prone to complacency, are we not? We quickly grow cold in our zealousness for holiness, for godliness. That complacency is because we tend to think about yesterday and today, and we don't think about our consequences, the consequences of our actions today, tomorrow. We become lazy and undisciplined, especially in terms of godliness. However, if you knew that Jesus, if you were certain that Jesus was coming in all his glory, and with that the judgment tomorrow, when all things will be exposed, how would you live today? Most of us, I pray, would really, we would get busy doing that which pleases our coming king. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7, says the end of all things is at hand. Therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded. So the promise of Christ's return should cause us to be ever watchful. So I am, uh, as Paul alluded to earlier, I'm currently a full-time student. And there are several students here with us this morning. And I'm pretty certain that each one of you has um, been a student at some point in your lives. So I will use this analogy. I think it is helpful. I liken the watchfulness caused by the knowledge of Christ's imminent return to the way students conduct themselves when it comes to their studies. Whenever a new class is started, the first day of class is usually an introduction or an orientation. This is when the professor or instructor lays out his or her requirements for that class. And during that first day of class, students will be given a schedule for all the quizzes and exams due for that term. With this schedule, the student would plan exactly what days he or she must set aside to study for those quizzes. And knowing most students, it's maybe a few hours before the quiz or exam. That student would most likely not study every day because it wouldn't be necessary because that student would know exactly when those quizzes and exams would be. That student would be free to focus on other things, perhaps even relax. However, what do you think would happen if on that first day of class they were told by their lecturer, their instructor, that on any given day they will receive a pop quiz? They won't know when it is, but it's going to cost, it's going to count towards a large portion of their grade. But it will happen, it could happen any day. Well, if the student 
If the students cared about their grades, which addresses the desire issue we discussed earlier, they would make sure that they would need to study every day before the next class, just in case. There would be no day in which the student could just sit back and relax. So, the knowledge of the imminent and guaranteed pop quiz would guard the student against complacency and laziness. In the same way, I believe that this is how the promise of Christ's imminent return leads the Christian to daily godliness. It It causes us to be watchful, to guard against complacency towards sinful desires. So the promises of Christ's return and the new heavens and earth filled with righteousness lead us to become partakers of his divine nature because our desires have been changed from sinful desires to godly desires. And because those desires have been changed, they desire righteousness. They desire to be in the presence of his glory and excellence. And those desires are for his promises, especially the promise of Christ's return. So what do we do with, with this, friends? What do we do with this glorious text and the truth that is in it? So firstly, if you blanked out within the first eight minutes of the sermon and are only returning back with us now, or if you struggle to follow along, and for that I apologize, if you can, take, if you can just take home this summary statement, I believe that you will have what is needed to grow in holiness. The summary statement is... What I believe the Holy Spirit wants you to know is this. If God chooses or has chosen to reveal His glory and excellence to you through His Word in the person of Jesus Christ, you will know Him. And this is eternal life. And if you know God, you will desire and long for the coming of His glory and excellence when Jesus returns as promised. And bringing with him the new heavens and a new earth filled with righteousness. And it is this longing and this loving of his coming that leads to life and godliness. It leads to us partaking of his divine nature. So, Christian, is your life marked with godliness? If not, your knowledge of God and his promises is growing or has grown dim. Peter prayed that you will increase in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So how can you increase in the knowledge and grace of Jesus? You need to spend time with Him in His Word. We've already discussed this. This is the way God has chosen to reveal Himself to us. It's through His Word. You need to spend time with Him in His precious Word. And don't read it mechanically. We are so prone to do this. Don't read it mechanically just so that you can say at the end of the day, yes, I read, my, I read my three chapters for the day. I'm done. I'm good. No, you can't do this. You need to rather intentionally, while reading through Scripture, you need to be looking for references. You need to be looking for His glory and excellence in every word as you read it and meditate on that. But remember, we've already discussed this right in the beginning. It is only by God's power that you can be drawn to Him, that you can know Him. So as you read His Word, read it prayerfully. And also spend time reflecting on the promises of the glorious coming of Jesus. So hear what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 4 verses 7 to 8 regarding the coming of Jesus. In the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Meditate on on the truth that Jesus is coming again in all his glory and excellence. And with his coming, the new heavens and new earth filled with righteousness. And obviously us becoming fully and perfectly like him in his moral qualities. So Christian... Love his appearing. And lastly, for those of you who do not know God, and there might be several of you here, I do not know, but if you do not know God, please know that knowing God is possible. But you must know him through Jesus Christ. You must see his glory and excellence. If you desire to know God, 
please, come speak to one of the elders after the service. And if you cannot find an elder, uh, please come to me or anyone else and we'd gladly introduce you to them. And they, Lord willing, will introduce you to the glorious and excellent Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, we thank you for your precious word. Thank you for giving us the means through which to know you. Thank you for revealing to us your glory and excellence in Jesus Christ, your Son. I pray that those who know you this morning will increase in that knowledge, increase in grace, so that they may grow in godliness, grow in sanctification. Help us to love the promises of Jesus' coming. And that is when we will be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And for those of and those who are here today who do not know you, O oh Father, I pray that you draw them to yourself, that you show them your glory and excellence in Jesus Christ, that they may know you and have life and godliness. To you be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. We have an opportunity to take the Lord's Supper together as we do every week here at Trinity Church. I want to remind you that this meal that we take on a weekly basis is for those who have publicly identified with the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. They have publicly identified with Him through baptism. Uh, Only those who have been baptized publicly should be taking this meal. And only those who are walking in fellowship with the brothers and sisters of Christ. So if you are not walking at peace with someone else here in the body, please do not take this meal until you have uh, sought peace with them.